Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's co-host, Alok Tai. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vibe Bio. Vibe partners with patient communities to develop novel therapeutics. We're really excited today to host Dr. Marshall Fordyce. Marshall is the CEO and founder of Vera Therapeutics. Today, we'll be talking about a wide-ranging set of topics, from his early career and work in HIV to founding Vera Therapeutics and their work in the space of immunological diseases. Marshall, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Alok. You know, maybe to kick us off, we'd love it if you could give us a quick intro on your background and how you got to where you are today. I'm the founder and CEO of Vera Therapeutics, currently based here in San Francisco in the Bay Area. I was born in New York City and was fortunate to have a medical education on the East Coast, first at Harvard Medical School, where I was among a generation of physicians who was really inspired to do something about uh, HIV and thankfully was able to go on to training in New York City at internal medicine at NYU Bellevue Hospital and then on to subspecialty training in infectious disease at Columbia Presbyterian, where I really followed my interest in HIV. And all told, I spent about 15 years in the HIV field, first as a clinician, and then for about four years at the bench, and then ultimately went into drug development at Gilead Sciences. And that's what had me moving to California back in 2010. I began as an associate director of clinical research, where I was assisting with designing, conducting, analyzing, and presenting clinical trials in HIV drug development, and went to the company at a really amazing time. HIV drug development went from, at the time, one single tablet regimen to eight by the time I left, and this was a lean and hardworking team under great leadership. And so I really had a chance to grow and became the project lead for something called the TAF program and was able to take that from dose selection all the way to commercial launch in the United States and Europe. So my timing and my colleagues in the context at the time really made Gilead Sciences an important development part of my career. And I left Gilead in 2016 to go start my own company. I was introduced to Beth Seidenberg, who was uh, the senior life sciences partner at Kleiner Perkins, working with Brooke Byers. And the two of us saw eye to eye on how we wanted to develop a novel therapeutics company. We were pretty agnostic to modality and had some clear opinions on what we thought would be high growth. I formed a corporate entity called CDF Therapeutics with an initial investment from Kleiner Perkins. And our first institutional financings were in 2017 from first Kleiner Perkins and then from Google Ventures to fund a non-CRISPR gene editing technology we had licensed from Yale, where we were interested in developing potentially curative approaches to sickle cell disease and to cyst fibrosis. That was an incredible beginning. Uh, we were preclinical technology focused. And in 2019, we decided after spending significant time and focus in cell and gene therapy that there were real opportunities in immunology, in the clinical development side of things. And we looked at several clinical stage immunologic assets, and we identified our core asset today, which is called Atachysept. It's a fusion protein. It mimics part of the human immune system to essentially reduce a signal 
that causes overproduction of antibodies. And this is relevant to certain autoimmune diseases. And we in-licensed that molecule for MERC-AGA back in 2020 and closed a new financing round of $80 million from Abingworth, Sofinova, Longitude, Fidelity, and Surveyor. So we pulled together a substantial investor syndicate at the end of 2020. And then just in May of 2021, we went into the public space and did an IPO. And that's really enabled us with the financing and the momentum to carry a tacky step forward into a disease that has no approved drugs called IgA nephropathy, which is a rare autoimmune disease of the kidney. And so we've really started this company focused on a single disease area with a high unmet need and a clinical stage asset that has the promise of being disease modifying. And we have a vision to build upon that core and expand Atakisept into other autoimmune diseases that we see as being potentially disease modifying and other diseases, as well as bringing in new assets that are complementary to our Atakisept program. Very interesting. Just out of curiosity, it sounds like you've done the tour of duty between sort of private financing, venture creation to some extent, as well as the public markets. Kind of curious, which are the most stringent of conversations to have of those three flavors? Oh, it's interesting. I would say they're all equally stringent. Some of that standard is just internally generated. And I think I was fortunate to have a very rigorous early set of investors. And so that standard hasn't changed much over time. I think we're fortunate in biotechnology where data rules. Science really is gating, whether it's a preclinical assessment, uh, is your data rigorous and reproducible, and is it really gating you to the next stage? And the same is true in clinical science. I have found that life science investors have been increasingly rigorous, and that's a good thing for us and for the field. Awesome. So, you know, with that, with given the focus that Vera has in the autoimmune space, any chance you can give our listeners just an overview of the current state, especially kidney-related diseases? Absolutely. Yeah, I would say that beginning as an internal medicine trained physician, and that's an interesting hat to wear as the founder CEO, I can think of the patients who I took care of at Bellevue Hospital who had, for example, systemic lupus, and the standard of care is an anti-malarial drug called Plaquenil and steroids. And if you look at the state of drug development today and how far we've come in many disease areas, just the opportunity is lying in plain sight that we can bring better targeted therapies for patients with diseases like lupus. And autoimmune diseases, of course, are diverse. They have different pathophysiologies, and you have to be quite clear about which disease pathologies you think you can target with a particular mechanism and a particular molecule. And I think applying rigorous science there is critical. But I would say there's been appropriate attention to oncology generally in the biotech industry. And the flip side of oncology is, of course, immunology side. And I think there's been a real excitement around immunology and immuno-oncology. Where autoimmune disease has been difficult is the diversity of disease and as well as the patient selection and endpoint selection that's required to get validation that early stage clinical trials can translate into a pivotal trial and ultimately beneficial outcomes for patients over time. And that's where we see an opportunity, and we've seen that start to play out in the first indication that we're pursuing, 
which is IgA nephropathy or IGAM. This is a disease that affects patients on average. They're diagnosed at the age of 30 and they're otherwise well and yet develop maybe some swelling, maybe some frothy urine or hematuria or blood in the urine. And then if they are not well controlled on blood pressure medications like ACE inhibitors and still produce significant protein in the urine, they will progress to end-stage renal disease and require dialysis or transplant by the time they're 40 or 50 years old, which is a remarkably bad outcome for a young person who's starting their life. And so in that setting, it's incredibly important that there are clear definitions of what is that study population for a new treatment and what are the endpoints that are important. And historically, in drug development in kidney disease, a glomerular filtration rate, or GFR, has been the standard. And that's something that has high variability, and it's followed over time, say, on average of two to three years. And that makes drug development pretty difficult. But in the case of IG nephropathy, there is an opportunity, and this is something I would say is something I hope to see in other diseases as well. There was a collaboration done between Kidney Health International, or KHI, and regulators, including FDA, to look at IG nephropathy patients and the clinical data on the natural history of that illness and show that it's not just GFR, but you can also look at proteinuria or the amount of protein in the urine over time. And if you can reduce proteinuria by 30%, then you are able to reduce the risk of kidney disease progression by over 50%. And so the work that's done to look at that kind of data, the work that was done to look at that natural history data in IGAN has led us and others in the IGAN development space to choose proteinuria as a clinical trial endpoint that's potentially approvable by FDA. And we hope to see that move really in the very near term and see the first approved drug or drugs in IGAN based on proteinuria. That's a huge step forward. And I would say that you know, IGAN is a special case, and I hope that that will increase in terms of other autoimmune diseases and other kidney diseases where, you know, reliable surrogate endpoints are accepted and will encourage more drug development in that space. Very interesting. Just for our knowledge, how long did it take for that collaboration to actually produce the sort of conclusion that enabled the industry to evolve? I wish I could tell you exactly. It would be probably a little naive to know when all of that began, but it's been at least three to five years would be my estimate. You know, one could count today at least 10 different late stage clinical programs in IG nephropathy, whereas three to five years ago, that just simply wasn't the case, fewer than three. Yeah, very interesting. Super helpful. So now with that, I guess, given the exciting work that I guess sounds like patients and, and nonprofit groups along with regulators have enabled, it sounds like it's provided that foundation for folks like Vera to be able to now pursue sort of therapies. We'd love to hear a little bit about your current programs and some of the clinical trials you have ongoing, as well as your vision for the future of how you see Vera extending into other autoimmune spaces as well. Where we see the biggest opportunity for Vera around Atachysept is in IG nephropathy. And, and what we were fortunate to get when we in-licensed Atachysept from Merck KGA was really the first and only data set of its kind of a molecule that showed a reduction of the core autoantigen that kicks off the disease process. So this is something called a galactose-deficient IJ1 or GDIJ1. 
And this is known as what is recognized as foreign by the immune system and causes immune complex formation, which is really pathognomonic for the disease. When you learn about IGAN in medical school, it's proven by a biopsy. Look at the kidneys filters, the glomeruli, and you find these IgA positive complexes lodged in the basement membrane. And we actually had a randomized control clinical trial data set that showed that a tachycept at the middle dose explored, 75 milligrams, was able to reduce GDIJ1 by 60%. And that had never been seen before in the field. And if you believe in the pathophysiology of IGAN, it's relatively linear than other diseases. I would say that there's relatively complex pathophysiology that happens in, for example, a multiple sclerosis or other autoimmune diseases where there's different components of cell-mediated immunity or humoral immunity. In IG nephropathy, it's pretty clear. It's B cells that act abnormally. They make GDIJ1. That becomes a target for immune complex formation, and that lodges in the kidney and causes damage. It's pretty linear. So that's been, I think, a pretty exciting piece of data that we began with. And so we took that data and initiated something called the origin study to show that a reduction in GDIJ1 can actually lead to a reduction in proteinuria, which, as I've mentioned, is the potentially approvable endpoint in IGAN. And we're powered to show a 30% reduction in proteinuria between atakicept and placebo. We kicked off that study in May of 2021, and we're enrolling that study. We hope to announce full enrollment in the middle of 2022 and read out the study at the end of 2022. So that's an exciting step forward for the field and for Vera in order to show that relationship between reduction in GIJ1 and proteinuria and get a tachycept closer to approval into patients. That's what we're working on now. And as I mentioned, you know, our focus in terms of company development begins with singular focus and singular expertise in atachycept and IGAN. And we really have two steps in diversification. One is looking at additional autoimmune diseases of the kidney where atachycept can make a difference, and the other is bringing in potentially new molecules. And I can say that we've shared with uh, publicly that we're looking at atachycept in lupus nephritis, and this is really the most severe manifestation of systemic lupus. It threatens one's kidneys, which is a bad outcome, and currently there are very few options for these patients. Usually, it's a combination of steroids and heavy immune modulators, immune suppressant drugs. And then just in the last year, there have been two uh, new drugs approved in lupus nephritis, and that provides a very strong precedent for us to move forward with atacucept. So we hope to share publicly uh, what our plans are in early 2022 for atacucept and lupus nephritis. And then we have active business development assessing other molecules where Uh, They could be complementary with our program in autoimmune disease and and kidney disease. And what would that ideal program be? It would be clinical stage, a biologic, uh, something that affects patients with kidney disease and provide some compelling clinical data. Now, at the end of the day, it has to really have the chance to move standard of care. As a physician who loves taking care of patients, you know, myself and the team who've been attracted to work at Vera we really want to work on something. These are long-term projects, many risks, and we want to throw our effort at something that, if successful, is really going to move the needle for patients. And, you know, before we move on to the other areas, we'd love to also just kind of hear that transition, you know, early on in the conversation, you had alluded to being modality agnostic. 
You seem to be a little bit more focused on biologics. Uh, kind of curious to hear, as you think about the future of Vera, whether the focus on biologics is kind of a fundamental underpinning, or do you sort of see flexibility into gene therapy, small molecules, et cetera? Yeah, I think at our particular stage, a focus on a singular modality is actually quite important. We're still a small cap biotech company, and we want to play to our strengths. And so as we build uh, that internal infrastructure and expertise, staying within a modality makes sense. I would say in the very early pluripotent stage of the company, uh, we were quite open. But at this point, a tachycept is a fusion protein. It's a biologic. And that's really been where we see a second asset being the most valuable. It builds on CMC, regulatory, and other efficiencies within the company. But clearly, our vision is to grow this pipeline. And to me, the most successful biotech companies have served a patient population. I was fortunate to be at Gilead, and we really served the antiviral population, uh, HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and so much synergy comes from that. And I saw that firsthand, and we're looking to build that kind of synergy within Vera. Wonderful. Given the time that you spent at Gilead, obviously, there's a lot of their successes with hep C is sort of part of biotech canon, I think, at this point. would love to just sort of hear from the time that you entered into the biotech realm till today. Do you feel like we're in the golden age of biotech right now? Absolutely. We're in the golden age of biotech. And I just think we need to open up our frame of what history is telling us. It's been about only 75, 80 years of fundamental biomedical research, the underpinnings. If you think back to 54 and Watson and Crick, that's not long ago. And what molecular biology opened up in terms of both our understanding of human biology and disease, as well as the tools that we could create. And we're here we are talking about a biologics company. It's not that old. It's as old as Genentech and Amgen, and it's a relatively new area. And I think all of these are really harvest time for the degree to which we now understand disease, the degree to which we can now create new modalities. I mean, you don't need to look any further than mRNA vaccines. That was a total pipe dream, and that became a reality in a shockingly short amount of time, 11 months from identifying the sequence of COVID-19 to positive clinical trial data showing definitively efficacy as a preventive uh, vaccine. So that's just one of many examples. I think in recent months, seeing oral antiviral therapy come out, we're going to see more of that. We have built an engine. I hope we protect it and feed it. I wish that we had more investment in NIH. I hope we don't forget that you must invest in basic biomedical research to continue to create these opportunities. But for those of us in the drug development space, it absolutely is the golden age. And we're going to see more breakthrough technologies uh, make it through. Not all of them will, uh, but some will. And I, I hope more of them will be focused on targeting the source of disease and moving us from you know, treating symptoms to treating the cause of disease and potential cure. Wonderful. You know, I think it's safe to say that if there's any one domain where we could use more investment and more products, if you will, it's in the life sciences space. And I think we're all uh, rooting for you and the Vera team in your pursuit of IgA and nephrology. So Marshall, with that, we'd love to thank you for joining us on the podcast today. And I hope to have you back uh, when you've got some more uh, interesting data and programs to share. Thanks for the opportunity. Great talking to you today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by Alok Tai. 
It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.